Welcome to When Faith Hurts, the podcast where we explore spiritual abuse and how to heal from it while strengthening your faith. In this episode, we're going to be talking about warning signs that you might be in an abusive church. Okay, so I'm calling this episode 10 Warning Signs That You Might Be in an Abusive Church, but we're actually going to cover a couple more than that, so you got some bonuses in this episode. The first warning sign that a church might be abusive is that they tell you not to talk to each other about something. Now, I know it sounds crazy that, that a church would tell you not to talk about something with other people, but the reality is many times churches that are making changes will tell you not to talk to somebody else because they don't want you discussing the downsides of the changes. This is something we experienced in our church, and I've experienced it in a couple of other parachurch organizations. Generally speaking, the way this plays out is the church or the parachurch organization decides they're going to do something like change the doctrinal statement, make a change to the church constitution, or something like that. Generally, it's pushed by leadership, and the leadership doesn't want the parishioners speaking to each other about the subject matter because they don't want any dissent. So the real warning sign here is really about dissent regarding the change that's going to be happening. The second warning sign is an excessive talk of submission. This can take many forms. Sometimes it's focused on women submitting to their husbands or women submitting to men in the church. Other times it can be talk of submission to the church authority. I've heard of instances where a new pastor comes in and he's really focused on people joining the church for purposes of submitting to church discipline. That's another case that's uh, that, that I would call a pretty strong warning sign that you have a pastor who may be in it for the wrong reasons. So watch out if there's excessive talk of submission. The third warning sign is one that usually doesn't come from leadership. It usually comes from parishioners in the church. Now, obviously, they're not the leaders, so it's not necessarily a leadership problem. But the form this usually takes is somebody saying, we should, just, we should just listen to the pastor. We should just obey the pastor. The pastor wants this. We should just go along with it because he's the pastor and he knows best. Now, sometimes that's just a single person. That's not necessarily a problem. But if you have many people in the church who are willing to cede that much authority to the pastor without questioning it or without, um, without any critical thought, that can be a warning sign that you have an unhealthy church environment a group of people who are not taking responsibility for things in the church. The fourth warning sign is an elder-focused or strong pastor leadership model. The strong pastor leadership model basically means the pastor is a dictator, and if he's a benevolent dictator, that can work okay. But if he's not, you can run into some major, major problems within a church. The elder-focused model cedes a tremendous amount of authority to a few people in the church. If you have elders who are strong and biblical, critical thinkers, and not yes-men for the pastor, then this can be okay. In many cases, the way elder-focused leadership models play out 
is that the elders are put into position by the pastor, and then they become an oversight committee for the pastor that doesn't provide any oversight. They simply push his position. These two issues usually only come up in uh, Bible churches or independent churches. If you have a more of a hierarchical church, like a uh, Episcopalian or something like that, the denomination has structures in place to prevent this type of thing from happening. However, in churches like uh, the Evangelical Free Denomination or Calvary Chapel or other denominations where there's not a lot of central control, these models can take hold within an individual denomination and you don't have any recourse through the denomination. The church that I grew up in was an Evangelical Free Church that moved to a, an elder-focused model. That was something that was happening frequently in, those de- in that denomination at the time. And it caused a lot of problems within our church because of the fact that the, that the elders who were put in place were uh, yes-men for the pastor. And there was just no recourse to the denomination whatsoever. The best they could do was send out a, uh, a mitigator. The person they sent out was a retired police officer who walked in, sat down, and proceeded to lecture our family for about 15 minutes on submission to church authority, and then asked us for our side of the story. Now, anybody who's been through any kind of mediation training knows that this is really a, not the way mediation is supposed to work. Usually, both sides get to tell their side of the story. Then the mediator is supposed to take an unbiased view and try to resolve the issues to everybody's satisfaction. In our case, there was no mediation. It was simply, you need to submit to church authority, period, end of story. Why, did, why am I even here? And that's a really unhealthy model to be following. The next one is probably one of the most important ones. And that is the warning sign that people are disappearing. Usually those are people who are visible because they're closest to the pastor and the leadership and they know what's happening behind the scenes. So if you're sitting in church one Sunday and all of a sudden you notice, gee, Bob plays bass and I haven't seen Bob in about a month. I wonder, I wonder what's going on. And gee, Heather plays piano, but I haven't seen Heather in about a month. And who's that new person playing piano? I don't, I don't recognize her. Well, what this often means is that there are things going on behind the scenes that most people don't know about, and those things are concerning to people who are in visible leadership positions. And rather than making a big scene or making a big deal about it, they're simply leaving the church. Again, this is something that happened at our church. We had almost a complete change-up in the worship team over about a six-month period. There was one large family that attended the church. We kind of referred to them as a clan the matriarch and patriarch of the family, along with about, I think they had three kids, and then all of their kids as well. And then all of a sudden, they left all together. And it was enough people that it was really noticeable, because you had 10 or 12 people all leave at the same time, and they were all heavily involved in the church. When they left, it was very obvious that there was a group missing that was very actively involved and, and always around. So if you see people disappearing one or two at a time or larger groups like that, especially people who are in visible leadership positions, be very, very concerned. The next one's going to be a little bit controversial, and that is a focus on the King James Version of the Bible. There are denominations out there where within the church, there is a strong KGV contingent of people. Now, the problem with the KJV, it's beautiful to listen to. I love reading the KJV. It's great. But it uses an older book set that is insufficient. Remember, the KJV version of the Bible, also sometimes called called the Authorized Version, was translated back in the 1600s under King James. It was a tremendous 
advancement. It was a great translation at the time, but that was before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's before modern scholarship and modern methods of, of textual criticism came about. And so we look at the Bible differently today than we did back then. And the way we look at it today is better, and we have better sources, and we have more sources. Back when they translated the King James Version, they simply looked at the total number of manuscripts and said, well, there's the most of this manuscript, so that's the one we're going to use. Well, today what we do is we trace the manuscripts that we have and look for the origins of the manuscripts, and we compare how the original autographs that all of the manuscripts were derived from we look at those and we say, how many of these do we have and how do they compare to each other? So rather than simply look at the total number overall, we look at the autographs that precede those and compare those original autographs. And we say, well, we may have a thousand manuscripts here that all agree, but they're all derived from this one, one autograph. And we have six other autographs that disagree with that one. And so we need to focus on the ones that disagree because this one's an oddball. And even though it's been copied a whole bunch, we don't really think that it probably has the most accurate view. So because of that, the KJV is not really a good Bible for study. When churches are so laser-focused on the King James Version, it suggests that they might not be focused on the right things overall, and that the scholarship might be lacking. And honestly, they're sort of getting into a debate that there are virtually no scholars that think there's even a debate there. So if you have that lack of wisdom, training, knowledge, whatever the word you want to use is, in regards to something that's essentially a solved issue, it's, it's a non-issue to everybody else, it really calls into, into question whether that's a place you want to be. Churches that tend to focus on the King James Version also tend to be Calvinist denominations. Now, I'm not going to say that all Calvinist denominations are necessarily bad, but because of their theological structure, they do tend to be more prone, in my opinion, to abuse than other denominations. And that actually brings us to the next point, Calvinist. If you are at a church that's got a Calvinist theological system, I would be concerned. And the reason why is this. So there are two theological systems, two main theological systems out there. You have Calvinist and you have Arminian. The Calvinist system focuses on predestination and the authority of God. You'll know that you're at a Calvinist church if they talk about TULIP. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. All of that comes together to talk about predestination, which basically says that mankind has no free will in regards to their self. Now, there are certainly passages in the Bible that talk about predestination. We, we could have a conversation about what those terms actually mean, since, of course, the Bible wasn't written in English. We're sort of taking a theological approach when we're translating those words. And, it could, and my view, and a view of many other people, is that when they use the term that is translated as predestination, it doesn't really mean the thing that Calvinists think it means. Calvinists like to focus on authority of God and say, you know, God is all-powerful, and therefore he's the only one that can determine who is saved. If, if we have a say in our salvation, say, by accepting grace, by accepting salvation, then we are essentially being saved by works. The problem is, the Calvinist position, I don't see how you have a Calvinist God who is a good God, a benevolent God. And the reason is that if God is responsible for the salvation of all people who are saved, then God also is choosing 
to create people who will not be saved. I have a hard time seeing how that's a God that's an omnibenevolent God. I fail to see how the Calvinist God can be an omnibenevolent God, which is key to Christian theology. Because of that focus and because of predestination, my experience has been that Calvinist churches tend to be arrogant and tend to be judgmental and don't have a lot of grace. And why would they? They're the chosen. Again, in my experience, Calvinist churches are much more prone to church abuse than non-Calvinist churches. A good example of that, John MacArthur took off eight months to go work on his marriage. Now, that's great that he has the kind of means to allow him to take eight months off of work to go work on his marriage, but it's hardly the gold standard for Christian behavior. If his marriage degraded to the point that he had to take eight months off to fix it, you have to believe there is some sort of emotional abuse going on in the house. For those of you who don't know, John MacArthur is a Calvinist. He's, um, he is the president of Master's Seminary that he started, and he's a pastor of a church, rather ironically called Grace, up in Central California. The next warning sign is a lack of pastoral availability. I'm aware of a large church in the area where the senior pastor disappeared for a couple of weeks, and nobody had a way of getting a hold of him. The church secretary didn't have his cell phone number or his home number. None of the staff had his home number. I'm not necessarily saying that entire church needs to have the pastor's cell phone number or the pastor's home number, but church staff not having a way to get a hold of him, that's concerning. In that particular case, there ended up being some sexual abuse going on and some other things. It was really a, a very bad situation. Another example of a lack of pastoral availability is a, is a story from my upbringing. Our pastor tended not to do hospital visits, including for staff. So my mom went in for a surgery. Pastor didn't show up to check on her in the hospital, even though she was on staff. And another example from my childhood, my grandma was living with us. She had terminal lung cancer. And while she was living with us, my mom had vacation Bible school. My mom was the director of children's ministries. My grandma needed to have a surgery to insert a drain tube into her chest cavity the week of vacation Bible school. This was a surgery that was expected to extend her life by six months. It ended up being about 18 months that it extended her life. It wasn't a one-time thing. They inserted a drain tube, and then she was routinely drained of the fluid that was building up in her chest cavity, allowed her to breathe, and allowed her, her heart to function. The pastor was unwilling to step in and cover vacation Bible school that day. So my mom went to the church, opened Vacation Bible School. My grandma was with her, uh, sitting in the back of the church. And then as soon as the opening was done, my mom grabbed my grandma, put her in the car. They drove to the hospital where she had an open chest surgery. And then they came back to the church, and I believe she finished the day out, did the closing, closing ceremony, if you will, for the day. That is so far outside of the realm of acceptability that it's disturbing. So if you've got a pastor who won't step in, who doesn't seem to care about other people, who isn't available to take phone calls or to isn't available to his staff, isn't available for hospital visits, isn't available for all of those types of things that are part and parcel to pastoral ministry, you should be extremely concerned. The next warning sign is excessive emphasis on relatively unimportant things. Now, what do I mean by that? When I was in high school, I wanted to attend adult Sunday school classes. We, we had a small youth ministry. We had the junior high and the high school combined. I was a junior or a senior in high school. I was planning on becoming a youth pastor. 
I was helping to do things with the youth group, helping to lead worship. I was constantly involved there. I was meeting with the pastor, I'm sorry, with the youth pastor. I was on the missions committee for the main church. I mean, I was heavily involved. And I just didn't feel like I was getting what I needed from the youth group on Sunday morning. So with the permission of the youth pastor and the adult Sunday school class teacher, I attended an adult Sunday school class. After about six months, I had the parents of one of the girls in the youth group walk up to me and just start screaming at me that I was in her Sunday school class and that wasn't okay. I was taken aback. I had no idea what to do with this. I'm 17 years old and I've got a parent screaming at me for no reason. So I told her to take it up with my dad. Well, she walked away. Actually, she stormed off and went and proceeded to yell at my dad. I kind of thought that was the end of it. I think my dad thought it was the end of it. She called an emergency meeting of the Christian Education Committee, which she happened to be the head of, the next day, and they took a vote to say that I couldn't attend adult Sunday school classes because of my age. So when I say excessive emphasis on unimportant things, that's the kind of thing I'm referring to. Not every person is in the same place. Not every person is the same cognitively or spiritually or any of those things. Not everybody has the same goals. You know, I was planning on going to youth ministry. I was trying to push forward. The Sunday school class I was attending actually was focused on the five love languages, which I found to be really very useful for my life at that point. And yet, because of my age, I wasn't allowed to have that kind of interaction and training and experience that I was looking for from church. Another one is excessive emphasis on gender. I remember there was a church staff member, I think she was the worship director, who was attending the new members class. She'd been hired out of the local college. She came in. They had a new membership class. At some point after she started, she was attending the class. One of the things about the theology at that church is they didn't allow women to hold pastoral positions. That's why my mom was director of children's ministry and not the children's pastor, even though those roles are functionally identical. When she found that out, she went to the pastor and said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about this. I don't think that's right. And rather than sitting down with her, mind you, a staff member is to asking the pastor this, rather than the pastor sitting down and having a conversation with her and saying, I understand your concern, let's meet about it, I can explain why, etc., etc., he simply said to her, well, you know, that's what we believe, and if you don't believe that, maybe you don't belong here. That is not a very pastoral position. It's a very arrogant position. There are many things theologically about which good people disagree. We have to be sensitive to that when we're looking at theology and looking at those sort of divisive positions. It's okay for churches to have positions that other churches don't hold, but if those things become the focus, then the focus isn't on the right thing. The next warning sign is a lack of church growth. Now, there are many kinds of church growth. Not all growth is necessarily in terms of numbers. One pastor that I know of at a local church that also happened to be one of my professors in college, his church wasn't really growing in numbers, but it was growing in terms of the, the issues that they were dealing with within that church. I don't know all the details. He never shared them. But he said a number of times in class that his church didn't grow in numbers because there were major issues within the congregation that had to be addressed regarding the parishioners. Basically, his church attracted people who were, shall we say, more broken than most. And so he spent a lot of time dealing with that and dealing with that healing and dealing with the healing of people's souls rather than focusing on building numbers. The large church that I discussed earlier was growing drastically. It had big numbers, and yet you had a senior pastor who was involved in sexual sin. You had a college pastor who was involved in sexual sin. You had an associate pastor who was very pale and very white 
and was a missionary kid from South Africa who sat down in a meeting, in a staff meeting, with with a number of, of African-American pastors and told them that he was, quote, more black than them because he grew up in South Africa. This is obviously a very unhealthy church with spiritual abuse and sexual abuse and all kinds of things going on that are not okay, and yet they were growing. So you have to be very careful with this particular one and look at the individual situation of the church. The church can't simply be growing in numbers without discipleship, without spiritual disciplines, without study, without spiritual growth happening. But a church that has strong spiritual growth might not be growing in terms of numbers because the pastor can't handle any more than what, than what he's currently addressing within the congregation. But either way, there must be spiritual growth in the congregation or it's a major warning sign. Another major warning sign is being critical of psychology, sociology, philosophy, or intellectualism, or even theology. Now, I know it sounds crazy that a church would be critical of, the, of theology, but I have experienced churches out there and parachurch organizations where I actually had somebody say to me one time, do you think you know more than us just because you went to seminary? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I spent three years of undergrad. I graduated in three years. I spent three years of undergrad studying theology. And then I did grad work where I studied theology. And then I did more grad work where I studied philosophy of religion. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that I know more about theology than you do because I've spent a huge portion of my life focused just on studying theology. The problem is you can't say that because they've got an anti-intellectual bent, an anti-theological bent. And if I say to them, yes, I know more about theology than you do because I've spent a lot of time studying it and training with PhDs, and that's sort of the point of education is so that you know more than other people about it. Not to use it as a weapon, but because you want to be well-educated. But when you have people who, are, who have that attitude about education, if you say that to them, then they'll say, oh, well, you're just being arrogant. But the reality is that knowing your place in relation to other people, for example, knowing that I know more about theology than they did, isn't arrogant. It's simply understanding and recognizing reality. What is arrogant is presuming that you know as much about somebody who's been to seminary because you've been to Bible study fellowship for a few years. That's an arrogant position. Likewise, people who are critical of psychology and sociology and the humanities in general often hold this position that you should that, that all problems are spiritual problems and that you shouldn't go to a psychologist for a problem. You should only go to a pastor to deal with those issues. The problem is pastors are not trained to deal with deep-seated issues, for example, the types of issues that psychologists deal with, like bipolar or borderline personality disorder or deep trauma. Pastors aren't equipped to handle that. Sometimes you actually do need a professional to deal with those things, and there may be a spiritual component too. It's not necessarily either or, but to simply write off those disciplines is just arrogant. And likewise, psychiatry, which of course is basically psychology plus an MD degree, in that discipline, they're dealing with, with hormonal imbalances and things like that where they're actually prescribing drugs to deal with things that actually needs to be medicated. A lot of times those referrals come from psychologists, and I don't think a psychiatrist is generally going to take a referral, and the insurance certainly isn't going to take a referral from a pastor, and a lot of pastors aren't trained to recognize those issues. And the reality is those issues are not spiritual problems. Those issues are problems of 
Well, you could argue that they're problems of, of a fallen world, but they have to be dealt with on a medicinal level, on a medical level. They, you, you can't just say, oh, well, study your Bible more and, and you, you won't have bipolar anymore. No, the, these are things that are real problems. They're not pretend, and they're not simply spiritual problems. They're significant medical issues. And the last one, your final bonus, is your gut. Now, your, your gut may not be well-developed. You may walk into a church and not sense the problems there. My mom is like that. She goes to churches that I look at and say, I see evidence of there being problems in this church. And when I walk into the church, I get a bad feeling in my gut. I know something's not right. That's one of my giftings. It's not everybody's. But if you walk into, your, into a church and you've got a bad gut feeling about it, listen to it. Trust it. When our pastor came to the church, I was 10 or 11 years old. I was very young. And I instantly knew there was something not right about this. I told people. I tried to get people to listen. This guy doesn't belong here. There's something wrong. He's not right for this church. There's a problem. These were things I said to people. Nobody listened. All I was told was, he's your pastor, submit to authority. He's your pastor, learn to live with it. He's your pastor, get over it. After he'd been there about 25 years, 20, 20 or 25 years, somewhere in that range, he was fired because the church had become lukewarm. The church had been through a split. The church had dropped in numbers. There wasn't spiritual growth happening. I knew all of this was going to happen when he came to the church. I didn't know how I knew. I didn't know why I knew. I simply knew that something wasn't right. If you walk into church and your gut has a problem, your gut's telling you this is not okay, you get a knot in your stomach, you don't feel comfortable, something feels off, find another church. I don't have a team working with me, so this is just me trying to find time to record and edit. Not an easy task with four young children who are all at home due to COVID. Be sure to check out my website, whenfaithhurts.org, where you will find a recommended reading list and other resources like a checklist of questions to ask a potential pastor. Be sure to check out the podcast on that page that fleshes out that list so that you understand why the questions are there and what warning signs to look for. And of course, if you would like to submit your story, you can do that through the website or on anchor.fm slash win-faith-hurts. Make sure to let me know if you would like your story shared and discussed. A special thanks to Bill Drake for permission to use his music. You can find his work on Amazon or his website, billdrake.com.